Heavenly Father, we, we just thank you um, for speaking and having your word recorded in this book. And so as we come to it, might we come not like any other book, not merely as ink on a page, but what your word is, your living and active word. Might it come with um, conviction? Might it come with clarity? Might it come with um, compassion and grace? Might none of us leave this place unchanged from the hearing of your word? Might it go into good soil that would produce a harvest of righteousness? God, what every single person in this room needs most, um, whether they are walking through the doors of a church for the first time, whether they are confused about what Christianity is, whether they have walked with Christ for 32 and a half years, God, whether they grew up in the church and they drifted away in their back today, where, whatever the story is, wherever we come from, what every single person here needs most is to leave this time more impressed with Jesus, more confident in what he's done, and more full of hope with what he promises to do. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come into this place and lift Christ high in our songs and our prayers and communion and our conversations and during this sermon, I pray that all of our hearts might be drawn after him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgments will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury." There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified." For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Feel free to grab a seat.
The News from Lake Wobegon is a show that was done by uh, Garrison Keeler about a small fictional Minnesota town, Lake Wobegon, and the various happenings of the people that live there. And I don't remember much about the show. I think my dad used to listen to it when I was a kid, but every show ended the same way. It was this dispatch, these news that would come out of what's happening in this town, but it would end like this. That's the news from Lake Wobegon, where all the women are strong, all the men are good looking, and all the children are above average. (laughs) Above average, that's the attitude in part that Paul, the author of this letter, is going after in verse One, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. There's this tendency to see the sins of others as worse than ours, to see ourselves as better than we are. In comparing ourselves to others, we often tend to rate ourselves better. There's a term, uh, dubbed. uh, they dub this tendency the self-enhancement effect, According to Scientific America, this happens in even greater proportions, not just in general things, but it happens in greater proportions when we think about morality and virtue. Am I a good person compared to those around me? Ben Tappan and Ryan McKay um, conducted a study at the University of London where they asked participants 30 different sort of questions or, or phrases around morality and virtue. And what they found is this, in quotes, we are most irrational when we consider moral traits. So this self-enhancement effect hits us even most when we think about our morality, and that is what the author of Romans is going after. You think you're so put together, is what he's saying, but you're doing the same things. You just don't think you're doing the same things. And if you want to read that, that list of what they're doing, we talked about it last week in Romans chapter one as we finished it out. Why? Why do we have this tendency There's a ton of reasons, but let me give you two interrelated ones as it is pertinent to this text. We lack awareness. We often lack awareness. I would actually say we all lack awareness. We have different degrees of awareness. Um, But we all lack awareness on how sinful sin actually is because we lack awareness of how holy God is. Those two interrelated things, we have to understand them to understand this text. The sinfulness of sin and the holiness of God. Let's start with the definition of sin. What is sin? According to the New City Catechism, here's the answer. And and as an aside, a catechism, if you've never heard of one, it's a series of questions and answers meant to give some training in the basics of the faith. If you've never read one, they're wonderful, they're helpful, they're offered to be memorized. You don't have to memorize them. I'm actually going through one this year just as part of my devotional time, so that's a, a bit of an aside. But this is from the New City Catechism. What is sin? Sin is rejecting or ignoring God and the world he created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting, and that says what sin is, and here's the result, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. R.C. Sproul gives a shorter but, but very powerful answer to the question of what is sin, he says it this way, sin is cosmic treason. It's the creation rebelling against the creator, living without reference to him or in submission to him. Even the smallest act of rebellion is monumentally offensive to the holiness of God. The first time I really remember rebelling against my parents was stealing. 
I'm sure I did it much earlier, but the first thing I remember doing was stealing, stealing specifically from my mom. I would go to her purse when she wasn't looking, and she always had, she would go to the ATM, and she would get the little white envelope and put her cash in the envelope, and then she'd leave that envelope in her purse. And so when she wasn't looking, I would go, and I would open up her purse, and I would take out a dollar, sometimes two, depending on how much cash was in there. I'd wait a few days. I'd go back and take another. Wait a few days, take another. I don't remember if I got caught. I assumed that she didn't know what I was doing. I'm sure she did. Um, But I don't remember if I got caught or if I confessed. I don't remember which, but I think about that act, and that was sin. It was a sort of treason. It was rebelling against my mom who helped to form me, my mom who raised me, my mom who provided for me. It was a way of saying, Mom, you have not done enough for me, so I'm going to take that which has not been given to me. I'm not going to trust you. How much more is this true when we sin against God? I've shared this story a few times. As we think about the depth of, of sin, there's a very famous singer. If I said who it was, you would know who it was. And she was performing at Madison Square Garden. She was singing the song Amazing Grace. Such deep and rich lyrics out of such a wounded and broken and sinful story. Amazing Grace, how sweet this sound who saved, and then she changed the lyric, who saved as someone like me. Help me out. We'll make it a little ironic. Many of you know the lyric, who saved a wretch. See, that's the song of someone who knows, at least to some extent, the sinfulness of sin and the holiness of God. Sin is not just making a mistake. Sin is not just making a poor choice. It's breaking God's law. It's cosmic treason. It's rebellion against the creator. Every time we sin, this is what we're saying, my will be done. My kingdom come. Years ago, Shy Lin, a hip-hop artist, released an album called The Attributes of God. And this is during a time in hip-hop music where oftentimes songs, they, we would do these like what were called sermon mashups. So they'd find like a sermon clip from a famous preacher, some powerful uh, sermon, and they would clip it into the beginning of the song. And on his album, The Attributes of God, in the song Consuming Fire, there's a, a quote from, from John Piper. And I can't think of a more powerful way of articulating what sin is. This is how Piper said, he says, what is sin? It is the glory of God not honored. It is the holiness of God, not reverenced. It is the greatness of God, not admired. It is the power of God, not praised. The truth of God, not sought. The wisdom of God, not esteemed. The beauty of God, not treasured. The goodness of God, not savored. The faithfulness of God, not trusted. The promises of God, not believed. The commandments of God, not obeyed. The justice of God, not respected. The wrath of God, not feared. The grace of God, not cherished. The presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. Piper goes on in the sermon, and what he does, what he says next, it connects the sinfulness of sin with the holiness of God. He says this, why is it that people can become emotionally and morally indignant? over poverty and exploitation and prejudice and abortion and the infractions of religious liberty and the manifold injustices of man against men and yet feel little or no remorse or indignation or outrage that God is disregarded, disbelieved, 
disobeyed, dishonored, and thus belittled by millions and millions of people in the world? And the answer is sin. And that is the ultimate outrage of the universe. Why this ultimate outrage? Why is that way of living without reference to God and in rebellion to God, which is true for everyone, for us in this room, to varying levels? We don't understand the sinfulness of sin because we do not see fully. We don't see to the extent we need to the very holiness of God. We need to see the sinfulness of sin and we'll only begin to see it in reference to the holiness of God. Not moral comparisons to others. What was happening in verse one? You're looking at others and... You look put together based on what they're doing. And oh, isn't this, doesn't this convict us in the church? Oh, the people out there. Not the darkness in here. And the rebellion right here. And to be able to see it, we, we, we have to try to get some reference to the holiness of God. Not self-enhancement, but divine exaltation. And this isn't an easy task because there's so many things that veil and blind us from seeing God's holiness. A number of years ago, I was in Sheffield, England, and um, you know, obviously long flight. I get over there, and um, I was doing some meetings over there, and the, the people that were hosting me put me up in a really nice hotel, had an incredible bathroom, and the thought of a really hot shower sounded amazing after this flight. So I go, and I, I turn the, the hot water on, and you know, I'm checking the water before I get in, and it's pretty cold, and so I turn it up a little more, and it got slightly warmer, but it's still pretty cold, and so I turn the lever up as far as it will go, and it's still just sort of lukewarm. And I'm sitting there going, this is going to be terrible. And I, I looked at the, the, the handle, and what I saw eventually was this little tiny button, like this little guard that had been put in there to keep the lever from going further. And so I pressed the, the button in, and I turned the lever up, and, and, and the water was really nice. It got real, real hot. And what I realized is they actually, I don't know if there's like an English law or something, but there's a safety valve that they'll often put in so kids don't burn themselves. And so once I saw that, that it could go so much further, all I had to do was press the button and I saw, I experienced so much more of its warmth. The same thing happens with the holiness of God. We have these governors that limit our ability to see him, see how majestic and how other he is. So I just want to take some time and try to Maybe press the button a little bit for us and get that lever to go a little bit further. In Shiloh's album, The Attributes of God, there's another song, and it's got a sermon that starts at this one by Sinclair Ferguson. And it was from a sermon based on Exodus 3, the second book of the Bible. It's okay if you don't know these reference points. That's part of the journey we're all on. But Exodus 3 is the story of what's known as the burning bush. Moses, one of God's early leaders and, uh, uh, of God's people, was, was in this desert wilderness, and he comes upon a bush, and the bush looks like it's burning. It's, it's engulfed in flames. But what the text says is that the bush, the, the bush wasn't actually burning. It was just flames. So Sinclair Ferguson in this great Scottish accent. I can't do, I, I would try it, but it would be embarrassing, and it would definitely veil the holiness of God, reveal the sinfulness of me. But, but he just begins to, to say, like, he's making these commentaries on why this fire on this bush without consuming the bush was such a big deal. It was this, this image of the holiness of God that is nothing but purity. There's nothing mingled into it. Nothing causes it. It's self-existing in its glowing brightness and its purity. It is unmingled. 
And if you know that text, the, the idea here is, Moses, you need to take off your sandals for the ground to which you step is, is holy ground. Or we could go to Isaiah 6, book about halfway through the Old Testament, the first two-thirds of your Bible. And there's a throne room scene. And in this scene, the, the prophet Isaiah, prophets were mouthpieces of God. They were marked out by God to speak God's word to his people, to declare who God is. And, and Isaiah is in what's known as the throne room, the, the holy of holies, the very center of the, the temple where, where the high priest could go only one time a year. When the high priest would go in, he would, he would have to tie a rope around his waist in case he got it wrong. He's going to drop dead before the presence of God. And so the, the priests that were outside of this, this very sacred place would be able to yank him out so his body didn't decompose inside. So that's the, the setting of the scene. And, and Isaiah is there and he's caught up in this vision and, and he and the glory of the Lord is there, and there's these, these beings called the seraphim. And the seraphim are, it means to be burning. It's the fiery ones. And they have six wings, and with two they cover their eyes, and with two they cover their, their feet, and with two they, they fly. And so there's this picture of these burning beings that God has created to bring him glory with their eyes veiled because they cannot look upon the glory of God. He's too grand. And their feet covered, which is a, which is a Hebrew idiom for their modesty or their, their, their parts are covered. And they begin to fly and they begin to, to call back and forth to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And I imagine it was loud because it talks about the foundations were, were trembling Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And they're saying it back and forth and back and forth, declaring his utter and ultimate purity. It's the only thing that's said of God in the Bible that's said three times. Holy, holy, holy. The word means to be separate, to be other, to be imminently pure. This is the godness of God. And Isaiah's response is what it looks like when you get confronted with the holiness of God as he falls upon his face and he says, woe is me. There is a place to do that. God is our father. Christ is our friend and our shepherd. But God is also so high, the highest heavens cannot contain him. Jesus is more than just our homeboy. God is so majestic, the fiery, created beings cry out. And sometimes, sometimes, when you get confronted with that, the response is, woe is me, not look at their sin. Look how well I'm doing. It's just, woe is me. And he says, for I am a man of unclean lips. Woe is me, for I am lost. Consider again verse one. Or verse two, God comes to judge or this idea of wrath stored up for the day of wrath, verse five, or verse six, he will render to each according to his works, or verse nine, there will be tribulation and distress for every human who does evil. This text of judgment, I would just ask you, how do you feel when you hear it read? I would suggest none of it makes sense if all we're doing is making moral comparisons to one another. The sinfulness of sin is only seen as we get glimpses of the holiness of God. That's all a big setup to try to give us a lens to understand 
as we move through this text and you look at verse 2 and everything that followed is trying to make clear what sin earns, which is judgment. Daniel Doriani, in his commentary on Romans, shares this story. He says, um, he's like, my child my, was just learning to walk, and he says he, he, it, during this time, he heard a news report about a father and his one-year-old daughter. And the news report went on, and, it's, and it talked about this, this little girl who was toddling down the street, and a, and a car jumped the curb and ran her over and killed her. He went on to say, you know, he's a dad, he's looking at his child, he thinks of another dad losing his daughter, and he said, as the news report continued, his emotions turned from sadness to anger, because as the story continued, what came out is that the driver was drunk, that he had just gotten out of jail for being drunk. It was actually his fifth time of being arrested for being drunk. And even though the judge should have detained him longer, had the authority to do it, he released the man, and an hour after being released, he killed this young girl. Doriani, he goes on and quoting him here, he says this, when the report ended, I realized that I felt sorrow for the parents, anger at the driver, and outrage at the judge, who had failed to do justice and therefore betrayed his people. Indeed, news outlets run such stories, and we remember them because they command our moral attention. We just know they are wrong. This is the work of the conscience, the moral sense that lets us stand aside and evaluate actions. Like if you look down at verse 15, it begins, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. In this section, what Paul is talking about is people that weren't Jews. They didn't have the oracles of God. This is the Gentiles, anyone that's non-Jewish. And he's saying, even if you didn't have the word of God, you have inside of you a sense of what's right and wrong. And no doubt what this driver did was wrong, but so is what the judge did. And not enacting justice. And then you see the price paid by a father and a daughter, and I'm sure so many others. That story's not just sad. There's, there's a wrong to it. The driver, no doubt, but the judge. And How do we think about God and his judgments and his justice? It's not just God's right to judge as God. He has the right. He is God. He will do all he pleases. But it's also right that he judges. Again, how does this text land on you? Does it seem unfair? Does it seem like God is being mean? Why can't he just get over it? Again, the answer, I think, in so many ways comes down to this. Do we see the sinfulness of sin in light of the holiness of God? Welcome, visitors. Um, there's another word in this passage that can, can help, and it's another word that's not very popular during our contemporary moment. It's this word wrath. We see it in verse 5. Um, this, our rebellion is meriting and storing up the wrath of God, waiting for the day of judgment. And in verse 8, wrath, it's important as we think of that word wrath. When we think of wrath, we think of kind of like unhinged, you know, freaking out responses to situations that anger us or make us mad or whatever. God's wrath is not like that. God's wrath is his very measured, very controlled, right response to evil in this world. We'll see, back in 
verse 18 of chapter 1 says, His wrath is revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. It's not like our anger. It's not unhinged. It's not unpredictable. And it's not in contrast to love. It actually shows the depth of his love. You know, consider again this story of the, the drunk driver and the unjust judge. Who of us can hear that story and just be indifferent? Not care. We have sorrow, but there also should be anger. Anger at the addiction. Anger at the choice to get behind the wheel. Anger at the judge who didn't use his or her position rightly. When we see injustice, when we see evil, when we see the abuses of power, when we see kids neglected, when we see greed crush the impoverished, when we see violence enacted on those that are unarmed, we rightly feel anger. We don't do it great. We often don't get it wrong. God always does it right. His wrath is always the right measured response to what's happening. It's not devoid of love. It's because he loves the very people that are committing these atrocities. He loves the very people that are being wounded by them. Gavin Ortland says it like this, anger is how goodness responds to evil. Justice squinting is how eyes respond to bright lights, or recoiling is how hands respond to hot surfaces. There's so much uh, to these verses, and we'll get to the solution to judgment shortly. Um, but to see how good the solution is, we need to clearly understand the problem. There's a question that we ask when people pursue membership in our church, which you are not, if you are not a member, I would love to talk with you about why and, and, and help you process through that. But there's a question we ask as people are coming into to membership, and we, it's something like this. When, when were you saved? When did you become a Christian? How, like, how did that happen? And it's not a quiz. None of it's supposed to be a quiz. It's just an opportunity to get to know people's stories and to, to hear how God got a, a hold of them. Um, there's a question that we should also ask, though. It's this, what were you saved from? It's a massive question. Without the wrath of God, without the sinfulness of sin, without the holiness of God, one of the things that we can do is turn the gospel, the good news of Christ, merely into therapy. And therapy is wonderful. I recommend it for everyone. But what we get saved from, we, we might come up with answers like this. Well, Jesus saved me from feeling lonely. I felt like I was all on my own and I heard about a God who cares and came. Or Jesus saved me from low self-esteem. I just felt really bad about myself. Or Jesus saved me from being afraid. This world is so chaotic and I heard about a God who's strong and good and in charge. Saved me from a million other things and I want you to hear this. He does all that. Wonderfully so. 10 billion other things that are absolutely incredible. But do we ever say this? He saved me from the righteous judgment that I have merited. He saved me from the wrath of the holy God that I have stored up. In the Old Testament, first two thirds of your Bible, in a book called 2 Samuel, um, it's 2 Samuel chapter 12, there's this scene where Nathan, who is another prophet of God, he's talking with David, 
who at this point is the king of Israel. So there's a prophet of God talking to the king. And the backdrop of this conversation is that David has done something very, very wicked. David has used his power to sexually assault a married woman to the most grievous ends. And then to cover over what he's done because she gets pregnant, he then has her husband killed. So that's the, the backdrop to this scene is Nathan the prophet comes to talk to David. And he comes up to him and Nathan begins to tell him what is a fictional story, but the way he says it, he's trying to get David to think it's real. He says, David, there were, there, there were two men in this city and one of the men was very, very wealthy. He had flocks and herds. He had all sorts of opulent wealth. He had so many animals. And then there was a very poor man and all he had was one little lamb. And, and he loved this little lamb so much, he raised this lamb at his table as if it was his daughter. And then one day, a traveler came into town, and as is the custom, you have to entertain a traveler when they come to your house, and he came to the house of this rich man, but the rich man, being unwilling to part with, with any of his flocks, with any of his herds, to provide hospitality to this traveler, he goes and he steals the one lamb from this impoverished man, all that he had, and he takes that lamb and he slaughters it. And he feeds it to the traveler. Nathan finishes a story and David got angry. His anger, quoting, was greatly kindled against this man. As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. So David says that and then Nathan looks at him and it's this great scene. It's this beautiful, beautiful, it's just just slicing moment. He looks at David and says, you are that man. What do you think you did to Uriah? What do you think you did to this husband you killed? What do you think you used your power to do? David's David's response is, I have sinned against the Lord. Romans 2.1, in many ways, is saying the same thing. To help people that don't see themselves as sinners, that don't think they'll face judgment, that don't think they've merited God's wrath, that they too are the man or the woman. It's the same for us. If you don't think you're sick, you're not going to go to a doctor. As Tim Keller says, you won't go to the doctor, you'll just die. If you don't think you sin, you won't go to the Savior for forgiveness. If you don't think you've stored up God's wrath, you won't go to, to the Christ who bore God's wrath on the cross. This passage, no doubt, has sharp edges, but they are also a display of the wonder of God's grace. And what we see in verse one is this severe reprimand. We have compassion of a severe reprimand Verse 1 and then 2 and through 5, we have the kindness of a sober warning. And I want you to hear the, the, the ultimate point of these verses is not to scold. It's to wake us up. So that we can get to the end of verse 4 and this word repent. So that we can, out of the loving kindness and patience and forbearance of God, that we can repent, that we can, that we can turn. Verse 4 is stunning, saying, do you not see the rich kindness of God who has been patient to withhold judgment? that you can repent? Examples of God's forbearance and patience are 
plentiful. Um, one that I always go to are these sorts of statements. So I'll, I'll give you an example of it. Um, but this one from Richard Dawkins, self-professed atheist. And when I hear these statements, I just think of the patience of God. Some of the things he's said about God. Some of the things he's published and written and propagated about God. Quoting Richard Dawkins here in his commentary of God. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak. A vindicative, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, felicidal, 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 means to kill your kids, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. And he's still alive. That shocks me. Dawkins using the brain God created, the body that he knitted together, the tongue that he formed, the hands that he established to pen and to propagate these statements against his creator. I mean, you talk about cosmic treason and he's still alive. You talk about the patience of God. You should see me when my kids just are slow to like make their beds. <laughs> you know, we, we might struggle with the idea of the, the judgment of God. Personally, I'm shocked at the patience of God. You know, if we look again at this word in verse 4 that begins, or do you presume, it's actually often translated as despise. Like we're despising his patience. We don't need it. We wrongly think there's all the time in the world. But there is no greater urgency than the present moment. Kent Hughes shares a story. I was deciding if I was going to share it. I think it's a really good story to illustrate this. He shares this story about a farmer who is an is a atheist, and he, his farmland butts right up against a church. And so he gets a lot of pleasure on the Lord's Day, on Sundays, when the church is gathered to fire up his tractor and to just run it back and forth next to the church uh, building. And he, he, just, he just loves this. And so in the, what he does is in the spring, he, he plants his corn and it begins to, to sprout. And then by the 4th of July, it's, it's knee high. And by harvest time, I mean, this corn is beautiful. His crop is incredible. The, the, the harvest is, is plentiful. And so the farmer, feeling very proud of himself, he writes a letter to the pastor. And he says something like this. He says, obviously, God does not exist because I have consciously defied God, and yet look how blessed I am. The pastor writes back to him just one line and says this, God doesn't settle his accounts in October. <laughs> Today is the day of salvation. Oh, if you've come to faith, remember it. Remember what you have been saved from. If you have not, today is the day of salvation. Do not presume upon tomorrow. The invitation of this text is to repent, to turn. These verses are very different than a doctor saying you have cancer, you only have six months to live. And a doctor saying you have cancer, you only have six months to live unless. See, there's, there's hope. There, that's, that's what's laced into the, the sober warnings and the compassion of this direct address to us. 
that we might be able to come and say, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, no doubt these verses list out a lot of bad news, but that makes the, the good news of God's grace that much more stunning. There's a principle listed out in verse six, and I will wrap up quickly. We'll revisit some of this next week. Verse six says this, he will render to each one according to his works. That's a principle that's laid out and then it's unpacked in the following verses. And the principle is this, it's a judgment based on works. It's that God will judge that you, 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 you will, if you do good, good. If you do bad, then bad. And if you get it right, verse seven, eternal life. If you get it wrong, wrath and fury, verse eight. And verse 12 and following, it expands this to say the principle that applies to everyone. There's no partiality. This is how it works. This is in God's economy. And then verse 13, restating the principle for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And what I want to do today, there's a lot of other things happening in this, te in this text, but here's all I want to do today. Here's the problem. We can't do it. We haven't done it. We're incapable of doing it. And it's when you get to that point that you're ready for Christ. To do what verse four implores us to do, to repent, to say, I can't do it, I can't. If it was up to me, the wrath of God would be upon me. Where can I run to hide myself? Where, where, can, I, where can I cry out and say, forgive me, a sinner? I need a savior. Today, the only thing I want to say is just get to Christ. Take your guilt to him. Hide yourself in him. Believe the gospel, this, the good news of how God saves unrighteous rebels, people that have committed cosmic treason. See, the story of the gospel is God, the one whom the highest heavens cannot contain, wrote himself into the story. In the, in the work of Jesus Christ that, to come so that he might still be just, not compromise on his holiness, but also justifier, the one who paid the debt that we owe. The story of the gospel is God took on flesh and Christ, he came to actually do all that we were commanded to do and failed to. He lived the life that we cannot live and failed to live. He actually fulfilled all the righteous commands. He's the only one that never, never didn't, didn't, it's not just an oopsie daisy, he never sinned. Not once, not in deed, not in thought, not in word, not sins of commission that he created, not sins of omission, the good that we often fail to do. He did it perfectly. And then he went to a cross, and on the cross, there's this great exchange that happens, this substitute that, that Christ became the sin-bearing offering, that on the cross, one of the things he did, it wasn't just a display of his love, it wasn't just a display of his mercy, it was the place where he took the very wrath of God upon himself that we had stored up for the day of judgment. That's why Christ on the cross cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because we stored up wrath and Christ put it on himself that on the day of judgment, we will not be judged according to what we've, been, we've done. We will be judged according to the righteous works of Christ that we might be forgiven. And then he went to a tomb and he rose from the tomb as a declaration that sin won't have the final word. But the grace of God will. And for all that trust in him, sin will not have its final word for us either. 
but Christ's blood, it will speak a better word. We may have no excuses, but through faith we do have Christ. And Christ is enough. We have no excuses, but through faith we have Christ. And Christ is enough. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text that confronts us, no doubt, but that we might flee to Christ. Help us see our inability. Help us see our rebellion. It's not all there is to see in us, but help us to see it, that we might run to Christ in his perfection, in his righteousness, in his wrath-bearing offering, that you, God, are both just and justifier. That in Christ, you you have demanded something that we are unable to do, but in Christ, you have given that which you have demanded. Help us throw ourselves on him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.